What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. So much for Ghostbusters being an escapist romp. Bill Murray and company in one of 1984's biggest movies at the box office. This week, we return to our 8 from 84 series with a summer blockbuster throwdown, Ghostbusters versus Gremlins. And we wrap up our Betty Davis marathon with 1942's Now Voyager. That and more, Mr. Pecker. My name is Kempinar. Ahead on Film Spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week on the show, we shared what we thought was a fun top five. The response has been very good so far, Josh, our top five movie-going experiences. And it was a top five we intended to pair with our 8 from 84 review of Ghostbusters and Gremlins. Kind of a perfect pairing when you think about how much nostalgia played a factor in forming our list. And Ghostbusters and Gremlins, both nostalgic movies for us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right up our alley. But that Top five did run a little longer than anticipated. We've decided to push that Battle of 84 blockbusters to this week. We didn't want to do a four-hour episode. No, that wasn't. Have we hit the four-hour mark ever beyond our top (laughs) 10 shows? No, I think that's still just the roundtable. Okay. (laughs) Sharing the show with Gizmo and Spike and the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man, a presence that looms even larger than any of those. Betty Davis. We'll get to the final film in our Davis Marathon this week, 1942's Now Voyager, and we've got our Davis Marathon Awards. We're calling them the Peepers. Sad to see that marathon end. First, though, we have waited long enough after putting it off for a week. Let's get to Ghostbusters versus Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who are about to give him... You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. It won't wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? You have? They're here. As we said, this conversation is part of our 8 from 84 series. Back in January, we revisited John Carpenter's Starman. In March, we devoted a show to the rock trio of Stop Making Sense. This is Spinal Tap and Purple Rain. Your first time bathing in the Purple Rain, Josh. Oh, what an experience. 
See what else we have in store at filmspotting.net slash eight from 84 Ghostbusters versus Gremlins, a summer of 84 horror comedy title fight. One of the supernatural variety. The other, I think you could say is a true monster movie arriving in theaters on the very same day. In fact, June 8th. So Josh, we're going to go to the tale of the tape box office. Ghostbusters, $229 million, the year's number two highest grocer, coming in behind Beverly Hills Cop by just $5 million. Cop, by the way, a movie we discussed in a bonus episode exclusive to our members on Patreon if you want to join the family and unlock that. Gremlins, $184 million, respectable, good for fourth, not within whipping distance of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but safely in front of any crane kicks from the Karate Kid. The advantage goes to Ghostbusters. Critical response. Ghostbusters holds a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, Gremlins an 84%, and looking just at the Chicago heavyweights from the time, Ghostbusters got the thumbs up from Ebert at the Sun-Times, Siskel at the Tribune, and Dave Kerr from the Chicago Reader. Gremlins got positive reviews from Ebert, Michael Wilmington at the Trib, and the Reader's Jonathan Rosenbaum. We'll call that one a draw. Leading men. Bill Murray's Dr. Peter Vinkman, Zach Galligan's Billy Peltzer. May this be the only time I ever say this, but I think we should listen to Judge Reinhold's douchey bank junior VP. Billy, you putz. (laughs) Advantage, decidedly, Ghostbusters. Supporting women, Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett. Phoebe Cates as who, Josh? What is Phoebe Cates' character name in Gremlins? Boy, you've got me there, though she does get very two very interesting, <laughs> morbid scenes in Gremlins that I yeah. hope we get to talk about a little bit. But that was kind of a rhetorical question because I was pretty sure you wouldn't know the answer, which may go to one of my points about character development or the lack thereof in Gremlins. Her name is Kate, Kate Beringer, in fact, and I'm just going to say, sorry, Phoebes, while playing Kate did carry a high degree of difficulty, the tonal quagmire that is one of those scenes you're thinking of, Josh, the worst thing that ever happened to me was on Christmas monologue and more dauntingly having to convincingly convey any romantic longing for Billy Weaver's Dana sleeps above her covers four feet above her covers. She barks, she drools, she claws and possesses the perfect combination of loathing and bemusement towards Murray to be fair, advantage to be Ghostbusters, to be fair, Adam, I'm glad you said Dana, because I don't think I would have been able to recall her character's name either. That's probably <laughs> just a factor of my fading memory, though, than, than of the performances. Yeah, I think it is, because the Ghostbusters say it a lot. So, moving on. Sequels. Ghostbusters 2 didn't do as well as its predecessor, but still made a whopping $215 million worldwide in 89. Gremlins 2, the new batch, only amassed $41 million domestically in 1990. Each, surprisingly to me, boasts a fresh 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I don't know anyone who thinks fondly of director Ivan Reitman's second go with the material, whereas Joe Dante's follow-up has a cult following with fervent supporters. And let's not overlook their more recent pop culture corollaries. The criticism surrounding the making of the all-female 2016 Ghostbusters reboot was undoubtedly, as director Paul Feig put it, vile, misogynistic shit. But that doesn't change the fact that the movie itself is, despite its talented cast, in my opinion, pretty terrible. Gremlins 2 spawned a memorable Key and Peel sketch introducing the world to Peel's Hollywood sequel doctor, Star Magic Jackson Jr. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, Google it. Advantage, we'll give this one to Gremlins. Totally inappropriate scenes. 
commenting in a recent film spotting poll, our friend Keith Phipps from The Next Picture Show said that Kate's aforementioned How I Found Out About Santa Scene is why he's never shown gremlins to his eight-year-old. <laughs> Though Mrs. Deagle's stairlift flight out the window to her death has to be in contention. Ghostbusters' phantasm sex dream is why he's never shown that one to his kid. For the record, Keith is decidedly pro-Gremlins, sly jokes, and great effects, he says. But in this category, Ghostbusters wins or loses because Dan Aykroyd's close encounter of the icky kind is way more likely to prompt a question from your child you're going to pretend you didn't hear. Oh, yeah. That was that was an awkward moment a couple of years ago in the Larson household, for sure. So, yeah, yeah. disadvantage Ghostbusters. <laughs> Well, I'm giving it the edge because it's totally inappropriate. Finally, and you love watching about, those scenes with your family. Okay, no, I don't. But if you're going to push the envelope, finally, what about pure movie magic? In our poll, film spotting listeners overwhelmingly preferred Ghostbusters, 68% to 32%. With responses like this one from Miranda, I once went to a repertory showing of Ghostbusters that was sold out and the staff came in and stood alongside the walls. It's the single greatest cinema experience I've ever had. In advance of our previous show, Adam Grossman shared this voicemail recounting the movie-going experience of his life. Hey, film spotting family. It's Adam Grossman here from North Vancouver, B.C., the movie-going experience of my life is perfectly in sync with this week's show. I was aged just seven in 1984 when my parents took my brother and I to see Ghostbusters at our local Odeon Cinema. It wasn't my first trip to the movie theatre, but it was the first time I remember falling in love with the big screen. My overwhelming memory is of the early scene of those intimidating marble lions, of Egon, Ray and Venkman encountering the librarian ghost at the New York City Public Library. As our rookie Ghostbusters fled from that initial ghoulish encounter, I think my screams were the loudest of anyone in the theatre. From that moment onwards, I gripped my seat throughout, equally frightened yet exhilarated for every single minute. It was everything cinema should be to a little boy like me. And, just like Adam Kempenar, when I got home, all I ever wanted to do with my life was become a Ghostbuster. Within the space of 12 months, I saw Ghostbusters, Back to the Future and The Goonies at the cinema. What a time it was to be a seven-year-old boy. What a time indeed. Adam was seven, I was eight, and lots of other young boys, and I suspect girls too, were similarly awestruck. Perhaps it's because, as I suggested last week, you could be a Ghostbuster, the same way you were Indiana Jones, Josh, for Halloween after seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark. What's the Gremlins equivalent? Where are the voicemails from listeners who covered themselves in makeshift fur and gave themselves a white mohawk like the villainous stripe? We've established that wanting to be Billy Peltzer is out of the question, but where are the photos of young kids pretending to be Gizmo, the mogwai whose entire personality is making cute noises and disapproving faces? Gizmo would definitely shake his adorable little head at Dr. Vinkman electroshocking that nice college guy. Or is it, Josh, that the only category where Gremlins decisively prevails is morals imparted? That is, it's anti-Christmas, anti-consumerist bent, complete with closing, Americans spoil all of nature's gifts admonishment, makes Gremlins the better movie to pair provocatively with, say, Fight Club, the better movie, as I don't imagine we'll devote much time to the hidden meanings of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, to talk about, just not, you know, the better, more entertaining movie to watch. Well, I, I think we just hit our first four-hour episode. <laughs> 
So we're there. Congratulations for pulling that off <laughs> right after I threw down the gauntlet. Um, that was that was a very well argued case, counselor. Um, and uh, the facts were presented quite accurately. I appreciate them. Thankfully, this is not a court of law, and movie magic is not determined by such things. And I can say to just about every one of those items, I don't care, <laughs> because what matters for me is my experience with both of these films. And I'll start by saying that I did have a better experience um, with Ghostbusters this time around, when I revisited it uh, again with the family, that the viewing that went awry during the Ackroyd scene a couple of years ago, I think the burden of nostalgia was too heavy on it because I was one of those kids who loved Ghostbusters and pretended to be Ghostbusters. I think I would have had a little harder time um, doing the homemade costume of Stripe than I did finding a jumpsuit. So, so yeah, uh, degree of difficulty may have played a role in part of the Halloween costume choices. But yeah, loved this movie when I was young and. And so was a little disappointed to revisit it a couple of years ago and see that, um, you know, it didn't wear so well in certain ways for me as an adult. This time that burden was lifted, enjoyed the movie a lot more, remembered things like owning the Ray Parker Jr. cassette tape where Ray Parker Jr. would pop out of the no ghost symbol on the cover and just playing <laughs> that over and over and over. And while we're going to um, YouTube for clips of things, Adam, um, I suggest people track down the video, the music video, also directed by Reitman, um, that Ray Parker Jr. did for that song. It is quite something. The neon alone you're, you're is encouraging sublime. That. Oh, it's an experience, especially <laughs> if you grew up in the 80s. So yeah, this Ghostbusters is a really good film. I loved, here's the bottom line for it, um, and we can get into more detail about it if you want to, but for me, it was refreshing to see, even in the context of Gremlins, how weird that movie is for a major mm-hmm. studio release, um, for a family sort of comedy um, and for a for a movie that made that amount of money at the box office. I mean, how refreshing that such a weirdo film um, with a lead performance by a weirdo like Bill Murray struck a chord with audiences and has done so for decades. So Ghostbusters, good film. It's not as good as Gremlins. It's just not as interesting. Um, it's not as daring there as you were pointing to there at the end. It doesn't have as many ideas at play. And I'm sorry if if I liked that even when I was younger. That's one of the things that I did like about Gremlins. I don't think I picked up on everything it was satirizing, but I could tell there was something going on here beyond the goofy fun of Ghostbusters. Something else, something more um, brazen, something more dangerous was happening in Gremlins. And when you watch it again as adult, uh, you really recognize what is going on there. So I don't want to say that Ghostbusters is square or corporate. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but compared to Gremlins, it can feel a little bit like that, especially if you watch them you know, within the same week or something. Um, mm-hmm. maybe, this is, maybe this is the way to put it. Ghostbusters is kind of like the kid in class who said something funny, said something snarky, got sent to the principal's office, and you know you see him a couple hours later. Gremlins is the kid who broke into school at night, pulled off an outrageous prank, got expelled, and he never showed up again. <laughs> it's just there's there's more mystery to that guy. Um, and I think even though that guy's prank might be a little bit messier, um, the tone may be a little crazier, maybe a little bit more jarring. It may be less polished than the good one-liner the kid delivered in class. Um, there's still something really compelling Hmm. and memorable 
And I think, again, just plain dangerous about that prank that I like when it comes to Gremlins. So um, hmm. I think you're right about the performances um, for sure. Um, but I think, you know, that can be balanced. And maybe we can get into this a little bit um, with looking at this as Gremlins as more of an auteurist film, something from Joe Dante compared to someone like um, Ivan Reitman, who Reitman made some very good movies, good comedies. I think Stripes is even better than Ghostbusters. Uh, But there's not a cohesive vision or point of view to Reitman's work in the same way that there is in Dante's. And I think that's another thing that's really interesting about Gremlins. But hmm. I don't yeah. I don't want to push this to a five-hour show, so I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> well, as valid as that might be, that definitely doesn't change the experience for me of watching both films. And we are going to come off as haters, even though you like both films, as you've established. And I hadn't watched Gremlins since I saw it in the theater back in 1984. But I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure we're going to find a lot of common ground. But in preferring Ghostbusters, as I do, and propping it up, I'm sure it's going to come off like I'm tearing down Gremlins a little bit, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. And similarly, you're going to be tearing down Ghostbusters, I suppose. I can definitely acknowledge Gremlins, and that's what I was getting at at the end of the setup, as the more interesting film. You're right. It's more daring, has way more ideas. If I was approaching it As a movie critic, especially one who had to write a review of it, maybe on deadline, I'd much rather write a review of Gremlins than Ghostbusters, right? I mean, even looking at my notebook, something about this period has turned me into you, Josh, and I'm taking a lot more notes. I love it. Because I watch movies. (laughs) It's great. And I've I've got one page on Ghostbusters, and it's mostly just my favorite quotes and a bunch of trivia. And I've got two and a half pages on Gremlins. And there'd be several ways into that review because, yeah, Dante has a point, maybe several for better or worse, that he's trying to impart. Whereas Ghostbusters aspires to be nothing more than a good time. You had your prankster analogy. I'd say it's the Peter Venkman of movies. Really funny, incredibly shallow, but really funny. And it's still really funny to me. I still, no matter how many times I've seen it, and I had seen it in the past four or five years, too, I think. There are still so many moments that I laugh out loud at and bring me more joy than any single moment in Gremlins did. Whether it's Go-Getter Ray, or you're right, no human being would stack books like this, or the whole exchange about Ray calling Mr. Peck dickless and him saying, yes, it's true. Peter says, this man has no dick. I still laugh at it, Josh. Mass hysteria, you bet. Still a good line, dogs and cats. But what makes it even better, honestly, and we'll probably talk about Murray, isn't that line? It's when he says to the mayor, but if we're right, Lenny, yeah, <laughs> you know, you just get that little subversion of authority that always comes through with Bill Murray. That's gold. And I guess I'll warn, too, against confusing substance or whatever you're calling ideas with craft, because as sly as the effects may be in Gremlins, it definitely has a very rinky dink look to it. Ooh, and I will provide ooh, it my rinky dink. Yeah, it does. Okay. And I will I will provide my own counter to that charge in a second. I will also acknowledge that I think Ghostbusters had a twenty million dollar higher budget, so I get all that. But you really can't compare Gremlins to Laszlo Kovac's cinematography and Ghostbusters. And honestly, the biggest surprise for me this time around watching Ghostbusters was recognizing that, oh, this is 
this is a real movie. And as I was as I was contemplating that and trying to make sense of how it struck me visually this time when it certainly never had before, you then see the credits and you recognize the name Laszlo Kovacs and you go, oh, this is the guy who shot Five Easy Pieces and Paper Moon. And it is actually there on the screen. If you go to YouTube and search for his name, a tribute to him comes up and they put that pull away aerial bridge shot of the Ghostbusters ambulance at dawn in that montage where it belongs, as well as other scenes from Ghostbusters. That library opening isn't about laughs at all, right? It completely sets up the horror aspect of the film, following the librarian through those stacks downstairs. For a comedy, especially a comedy of this time, it's not at all shot like a traditional comedy would typically be, including shot in widescreen. The aspect ratio is a 2-3-5. There's just a real dramatic mood to Ghostbusters that comes from taking the material seriously, the design and the lighting seriously. It's all there. And despite all of the jokes and all of the gags, and that's what the movie ultimately is, I'm definitely not going to go so far as to say it has cultural resonance like Gremlins commentary does. But damn, if watching it this time didn't tap into a apocalyptic dread that I thought was pretty potent right now. So I just think the storytelling overall is better in Ghostbusters, including it being a more entertaining film. Well, that, that's for I'm me. Still, but I'm also very pro Gremlins. I'm, I'm still hurting. No one who uses the term rinky dink towards Gremlins can claim they're also pro Gremlins. Now, okay. No, I am. Ghostbusters is, is, is handsomely done. I mean, let's not get carried away here. Kovacs has some great credits. Um, and it looks, I mean, it looks like a major studio production that you would expect being set in New York. It's yeah, it it looks great. And you're right. If you're comparing it to, you know, most cheapo comedies, it's much more handsome than that. I agree. But let's let's not act like this is one one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema in the 80s. Um I mean it's very well done. Rinky For Dink comedy. Rinky Dink that no way. Look the filmmaking <laughs> yeah. in Gremlins um has more personality, I would say, and has more distinctiveness. And if a lack of polish is is maybe how you perceive that, I, I guess I can't help you there. But I, I'm thinking about um, the planning of it, too, where things are pretty staid for the first couple of maybe 20 minutes i would say it does look like more like that cheapo comedy you're talking about maybe thinking of. for sure um but that then, chinatown soon, sequence in particular yeah as soon as you get uh, those initial fur balls popping um on gizmo's back dante throws in a dutch angle and it gets increasingly abstract cartoonish exaggerated and and i think those are all specific choices and a specific filmmaking style that he's going for there is think about the science teacher um when he's in his classroom and the box holding the gremlin falls off the counter we just get that mm -hmm. camera push in on the box you know all of a sudden we're we're getting into a more heightened story and also i think there's some sophisticated filmmaking going on here if you consider some of the visual motifs that come into play um throughout the film, there are a handful of instances where the mise-en-scene employs multiple screens. So again, the science teacher, when he's showing that movie to the students of the beating heart, later it turns on when he's looking for the gremlin and we see it playing in the background. It just adds this other element of of gore, really, and unease. But there's a screen there. There's also the, the famous movie theater sequence when Billy and Kate mm -hmm. uh, run behind the screen and then you get the shot of the gremlin shadows chasing after them. So there's a screen at play there. And then when they're in the department store 
in the climax, chasing Stripe, Stripe appears on all of those TVs that are part of the dis- the TV display. So th- these, this is just one example of how, how the filmmaking is, yes, more exaggerated and maybe doesn't have that studio polish, but I think adds into the film's um, excitement for me. And and that's all that's all due to Dante, again, who is this interesting prankster outsider in the 80s. Um, he's definitely part of the Spielberg-Lucas-Zemeckis circle. You mentioned Spielberg in your setup, Adam, and, you know, he's an executive producer on Gremlins. There's that great shot early of the billboard of uh, Rockin' Ricky Rialto, the DJ, yeah, the local Raiders. DJ, who's wearing the Indiana Jones outfit, right? So... Um, and, uh, Spielberg, I think also involved in this script, but again, Dante is kind of on the outside of that. Basically what that moment when Stripe pushes the stuffed doll of ET off the shelf in the department store, Mm -hmm. that kind of sums up Dante's place in that circle. I think this is a guy who made Piranha for Roger Corman. And then later in the eighties, he made Explorers, Inner Space, The Burbs, which I love, Matinee, which is a little gentler for him. And then Small Soldiers, um, which is very Gremlins-like, another straight satire. And really what Dante is making are these satirical, irreverent deflations of this mythical, make America great again, America, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I think we're probably going to get to, cause you noted on, on Slack as well, Dick Miller, in Gremlins yeah. as totally a Trump voter, right, Futterman? Oh, yeah. He's, he's, this, he's America first. He's this laid-off, angry guy, yep. suspicious of foreign cars and TVs. Um, and again, so I think this is just a key distinction from, from Ghostbusters. We're getting more into that ideas element here. Um, but the filmmaking itself, I just want to stress, I don't want it to be um, passed off because it doesn't have the studio polish that Ghostbusters does, which I agree is there, and to its credit, um, just because it's a completely different style for Gremlins, to me, does not make it a lesser style. No, no, and look, this is one of those semantic arguments that I don't think we probably need to waste any more time on, but I don't want it to be suggested that just because it's more polished, that's what I'm singling out. I'm saying there's real artistry, not just polish, to what Laszlo Kovacs is doing. And similarly, I'm not saying Gremlins isn't sophisticated filmmaking. I am saying, compared to Ghostbusters, there is something about its overall look, its sheen, if you will, that I don't think is as sophisticated. But the only mistake I want to try to avoid is the one where we say, well, just because it fits into that a tourist scheme and we can talk about Dante as a certain type of filmmaker in a way we can't with Reitman, that means that it's clearly superior filmmaking and that we shouldn't we shouldn't prop up Ghostbusters a little bit more versus just seeing it as a movie that's got funny jokes in it and a great Bill Murray performance. But we I do, do think it's a little bit more than but that. But we do it all the time. I mean, this is why we're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson all the time on this show or the Coen brothers, because we see a larger value to films where you can trace those threads. Now, that doesn't mean we're right in doing that or we're wrong in doing that. But it, it's interesting to me that you're, you're almost making an argument here that I found myself over the years on the show making is, is trying to defend the more populist um, film that yeah. may not have these sort of I'm artur- fitting that role this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of love it. I, ju- I just wish I was maybe a little bit more on your side this time. Well, let's get into Gremlins then, and I can talk about what I did really appreciate about the film. Before Dante makes the references explicitly clear, and he does, it's obvious what he's doing. Mrs. Deagle as this Mr. Potter-like rich misanthrope, right? And the bank foreclosures. And 
you're immediately thinking of It's a Wonderful Life. Again, even before we get a direct homage to it when it comes on the TV screen in the Peltzer's kitchen. And of course, she's Miss Gulch, too, from The Wizard of Oz. She wants the dog, and she even quotes the movie then directly at a later point. So right away, you know that Dante is taking these classic, wholesome pieces of American pop culture, and he's turning them on their heads. And it's not just what they are, but how they're perceived, their function. You sit with your families and watch The Wizard of Oz and watch It's a Wonderful Life, especially at the holidays. I mean, I've said it before on this show. We are just old enough, Josh, to be in that window where we got to see the transition. I hate saying this out loud because it dates us so. But we were just in that window where we remember having only three channels on our TV set and no home video pre-VHS, certainly pre-DVD, and when The Wizard of Oz was shown on TV once a year, you sat with your family and got the popcorn out, and it was an event, Mm -hmm. right? So Dante knows that, and he's playing with that. And if it was just those winks and subversions, or even if it was just Dante tearing down this idea of Rockwellian America, which probably never existed, honestly, right? And if it did, it's been destroyed by rampant consumerism. It would be clever enough. But it wouldn't be really smart or really fun. And I think what elevates it is the way he fuses the two, pop culture and that commentary about consumerism. And this gets back to what you were saying, too, about the Dick Miller character. And I'm sure in the remake of this, and if you go to IMDb, at least for a few years, they've had a Gremlins 3 in the system. I don't know if it's ever going to happen or not, but when it's remade, there is a version where that guy probably is wearing that hat Mm -hmm. if they were willing to be that political. But what makes this movie both timely and timeless is that we understand that gremlins, and he verbalizes it directly, but you understand that gremlins are something that are manifested out of fear. They're this creation to explain what's seemingly unexplainable. Like when he's talking about the machines during the war, when they didn't work right, they blamed gremlins. So when machines aren't working right, or I don't know, maybe the economy is in the tank. And People in this town are struggling, right? Phoebe Cates, Kate, she's working two jobs and one of them she doesn't even get paid for. We have that exchange at the beginning with the family and the kids who need food. Gremlins are a real metaphor for whatever we can blame. And the clever twist is with this film, in this case, they're actually real. It's as if all of our fears and our bad behavior came to life to destroy us. (laughs) And you have Stripe and his crew and... Again, never would have thought of this, certainly before watching it with a closer eye this time. What defines their behavior? It's it's an exaggerated version of us, yes, but it's also this exaggerated version that's mirrored back to them on television. They're constantly watching television and seeing these shows and movies, and they're mindlessly consuming and imitating the junk we consume on screen. That whole bar scene, right, which I actually think... I'm sorry, you're going to disagree with me. I do think it kind of completely slows the movie down. No, I'm, but actually, I understand. I'm with you there. We'll, we'll get to the okay. puppet work, but that's even for me, that's too much puppets. <laughs> yeah, it, it is too much, right? It's a little, it's a little tedious. But within this, this framework that we're putting the movie in and the larger commentary, that, that is the equivalent of Bugsy Malone, right? Except it's not kids acting like gangsters. It's these creatures acting like gangsters. And, and even, you know, I was thinking about the moment where we get the flash dance 
reference, which had come out the year before, was this huge hit. And it, it didn't make me laugh at all. And I saw it as this really cheap kind of spoof of the hottest movie of the time. It seemed like something you'd watch on an MTV awards show and not in this revered, you know, Joe Dante movie. But as we're talking about it, it makes sense that they would they would see something like Flashdance on TV and imitate that kind of junk. And I say that as someone who loved Flashdance in 1983 and watched it constantly. But these gremlins play too many video games. They eat too much candy. <laughs> they have a chance to eat an apple in the classroom and they throw it away just like we would have as kids, just like all Americans would. So they're us, right? And when they're not imitating pop culture, I think, too, the way they're wreaking havoc is also notable. And you mentioned the finale that takes place in this department store. And it's fitting, of course, that it's Christmas. So it's going to be amidst all this junk, sporting goods and electronics and stuff. But they also mess with all of the town institutions. Right. Mm -hmm. And the streetlights that they knock out of commission and cause wrecks. They're getting inside the mechanics of society, these things that ostensibly keep us civilized. So, yeah, I, I, I Dante knows what he's doing here. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And I, I love that notion of them being a reflection of us, a mirror of us. I think that's very true. I think it's also interesting to look at who the gremlins targets are. The spe- I mean, it's just chaos, right? For the most part, but yeah. they also have specific targets. And this speaks to some of the ideas you talked about. I think definitely American exceptionalism is a target uh, of the gremlins. And uh, maybe we can a little bit later get into that um, Chinatown bookend, how, how that is maybe racist, but also maybe there's something else, maybe a little smarter going on there that has to do with American exceptionalism, totally the capitalism and consumerism thing. How how about the fact that Hoyt Axton, who plays the dad, okay, the dad immediately wants to monetize Gizmo, right? Yeah. yeah. When he when he starts to reproduce. It's his big ticket. It's his big yep. ticket. It's his instinct. You mentioned the Christmas traditions, and here's where I will defend Phoebe Cates as Kate, her Two speeches she gets here. Um, yeah, maybe it's not the most elegantly written or performed, but I think thematically, I love that they're here and that they go this dark. The first one is just talking about depression in general during the holidays, how that's a real thing. Um, and then that Blackly comic story you mentioned in your setup um, that Keith Phipps had talked about not wanting to watch with his kids about her father in the chimney getting stuck in yeah. the chimney dressed as Santa. I mean, I mean that is just, it's it's. <laughs> kind of funny and also horrible and horrifying yeah. and and it's a complete deconstruction of everything magical that Christmas is supposed to be about. So I think you've got three targets there, right? From the gremlins, you've got Futterman, think about him, who they go after. He's the American, right? The stereotypical mm-hmm. mythical American. Mrs. Deagle is the ruthlessly capitalist real estate magnet, as you described her. And then, of course, the great shot. And, and this is where it's just a matter of sense of humor thing, because the, the dickless joke I watch now when I'm older in Ghostbusters and I cringe a little bit, even though I laughed my ass off in, in 80s, I can guarantee that. But in Gremlins, when I see them covering this guy dressed as Santa and taking him to the ground for whatever yeah. reason, 2020 Josh laughs out loud at that. So I just, I like how you just called me juvenile. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I just, I think the targets that the gremlins specifically go after is also not only makes for some great set pieces, but revealing of, of again, these ideas that are, that are at play. So, so let, yeah. let me ask you a question. Cause I think this might be another distinction between the two films for us, which, and one of us isn't right one of us isn't wrong. It's just a matter of preference and taste, but it might have to do with special effects. And I want to get back to that, the puppetry work as 
um, the Gremlins. I think there's some marionette work that's involved here too. The designer, Chris Wallace, of these puppets. And I think I just generally have a preference for tactile and practical effects um and the the sort of details you get like when those baby gizmos unroll from their fur balls the first time they do it and their ears have their eyes covered and so kind of like the way we recognize what they are is when those ears just slowly unfold and we see their eyes Mm -hmm. or even another great set piece the gremlin in the kitchen. This is during that wonderful moment where Billy's mom, played by Frances Lee McCain, Lynn, she takes them all out in the kitchen, but she first notices, she kind of peeks around the corner and in the foreground of the scene is this gremlin just mowing down on Christmas cookies. And as soon Mm -hmm. as her head comes around the corner, his one ear kind of like slowly comes to attention, just one gremlin ear. And just again, the tactile detail of that stripe blowing his nose on the curtains. I mean, I, I love Slimer. I was huge on Slimer again when I was a kid and probably would have then said he was cooler because it was it was kind of more impressive. CGI sort of effects like that were relatively new. Um, but even though something like the, the puppet work here in Gremlins is older, there's just something so exciting about seeing a, a joke where Stripe blows his nose on the curtains as gross as Slimer, but something more alive mm-hmm. for me. But, but I will give you, as I said, that bar sequence, yeah, they kind of, you could tell the puppeteers were going a little nuts there. It's just like, what else could yes. we do? And it does take you out of the film a little bit. I, I found an interview with Chris Wallace um, at StarWars.com, and he described it as the whole production as a real free-for-all in terms of what we could try or think of. And I think you do see that in that bar sequence. But but yeah, yeah you so definitely do. I'm curious how you know how you how you look at those effects compared to the more like CGI ones that we do get in Ghostbusters. I'll just say real quick two things. One, unfortunately, with that sequence too, it derails it to the point where we haven't actually seen Billy and Kate for a long time. There's a good stretch where our heroes of the movie just disappear. And that's that's one of the ways I think the storytelling kind of lets gremlins down. And Francis Lee McCain, I knew I recognized her because this is my childhood, the movies that I'm about to list for you. But I'll credit Sam on Slack. He pointed this out. You look back at the 80s for her. A mom character back in 84, Footloose, Gremlins, then in 85, Back to the Future, and in 86, Mrs. Lachance and Stand By Me. That's a good three-year run that? for Francis <laughs> Lee McCain, right? So, yeah, there's no doubt that the effects, the practical nature of the puppetry in Gremlins makes it the more timeless film versus what they were trying to do in Ghostbusters. There's maybe only one sequence, though, for me in both films that actually kind of makes you laugh a little bit and you chuckle at how the effects are dated. I think it's the moment when some of the gremlins are coming down the street. There's something about it where it's just obvious that they're not real or that they're puppets. And of course, in Ghostbusters, it's when Rick Moranis is being chased. When the gargoyle comes down the stairs oh, and out yeah. of the apartment complex and is chasing him. It's just so clear that that's a computer-generated effect, and it's pretty bad. But otherwise, it's not something that necessarily separates the two films for me. 
or makes one more enjoyable than the other, though I do completely agree with you, Josh, that Gremlins is the grander achievement on that front. I think Stay Puft Marshmallow Man definitely holds up, though. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the, me too. and that that is like, again, one of those weirdo visions that I absolutely love Ghostbusters for. Uh, and just another note about Frances Lee McCain. I mean, not only does she kill that sequence, which might be my favorite one. I, I love how it begins when she's still upstairs and they, they cut the phone line on her. And then they drop the record player in the living room. We get the great needle drop. Do you hear what I hear? Such mm-hmm. a wonderful start. But then when she gets into the kitchen itself and starts going after him, I love how she uses all these 1950s style domestic housewife uh, items basically as her weapons. So right. the mixer, yep. the microwave. How, how about the little... <laughs> Speaking of things that make me laugh out loud, after the the gremlin has been cooked, the little ding you get on the microwave yep. still. And McCain, she is gleefully maniacal throughout this she scene. Is. I mean, she really digs into it. She might be the movie's only redeemable character, too, you know, when you think yeah. about it. Maybe Kate as well. But I don't know that we're supposed to, you know, when you mention that we lose track of our heroes, I don't know that we're supposed to care too much about Billy, to be honest with you. I think we're supposed to be more... More invested in Gizmo, um, and maybe even maybe even like the Gremlins a little bit more, quite possibly. So, because you definitely don't like uh, how do how do you feel about Hoyt Axton as the dad? I think he's kind of <laughs> um, kind of a joke, right? It's sweet how yeah. they continue to use his inventions, even though they always That's- fail. But he That's himself what I was say. is kind of a joke. Yeah, totally. I appreciated Billy's spirit. Billy in particular towards his father, he keeps believing in his dad right. the way a good son would, right? Like he knows exactly what's going to happen and yet he keeps trying to use those horrible inventions. And Hoyt Exton, that's definitely another aspect of the film that made it, I don't know, feel a little bit more like a TV movie than it maybe needed to. There's something about that style of performance even. I like him well enough, Josh, but I was slacking something to Sam about Hoyt Axton and it auto-corrected Axton to Acton, like with an apostrophe at the end, not acting. And I'm like, yeah, that pretty much nails it. Maybe, Acton. Maybe that was his... Acton's kind of... <laughs> that's kind of what he's doing the whole film, right? He's just kind of acting his way through it. And, and you know what? He can do that. But I'm with you that another way this film sort of feels 2020 is that all of the men in the movie are just worthless. Yes. Like they're all, they're all either actually vile or they're just completely ineffectual and you don't need them around. They actually just cause more trouble than good. I gotta have him. He's incredible. Tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a hundred dollars for him. No. Look, I've got to have him. It's a present for my son for Christmas. It's exactly what I've been looking for and I've been everywhere. I'll give you $200. That's $200. I'm sorry. Mogwai, not for sale. I thought you said everything at your grandfather's store was for sale. Grandfather! With Mogwai comes much responsibility. I cannot sell him at any price. And, and you know, Hoyt Exton's, the dad, I should say, the, the dad's character, I think does play into just the last thing I did want to touch on is 
the bookend involving Chinatown, or at least starting in Chinatown mm-hmm. and then the Chinese shopkeeper who shows up at the end. And it does, I agree with you, it gets a little moralizing there when he takes Gizmo back and reprimands the dad um, for, I think the quote is, you do with Mogwai what your society has done with all of nature's gifts. You do not mm-hmm. understand. You are not ready, right? We are. We got all that. But I do think it's interesting that that character shows up again. And though the opening sequence in Chinatown indulges in exoticizing another culture. There's some Orientalism going on there for sure. Um, It's also interesting that the dad is kind of the butt of the joke there. The kid cons him into paying more for Gizmo, Mm -hmm. right? And you can almost read another arc of this film is that it's a morality tale about cultural appropriation, which is interesting in 2020 context because you've got this guy, the dad, and others really who take this creature from another culture, disrespect it, Use it for their own purposes. Um, he says He says right at the beginning, sure, kid, whatever you say about the rules, right? The science teacher falls into this as well. He wants mm-hmm. to do experiments on them. So it kind of works yeah. that the shopkeeper comes back to shake, shake his head at the white suburbanite's idiocy there at the end. Heavy-handed, yeah. Uh, they lean on it a little too strongly. But I right. do think it also tempers what is maybe some uncomfortable use of the Chinese characters, too. Yeah, there's no doubt everybody in the film, and this fits into that larger commentary we're discussing, everybody in this town that we meet, other than maybe Billy and Kate and Gizmo, are out for themselves. Whether they mean harm or not, they are absolutely just interested in themselves. And I noticed how many times in this film other people that our main characters encounter just don't listen to anything they say. Nobody is actually listening to any of the warnings they're given. Nobody's taking anybody else seriously. They're all just kind of going about their days with their, with their blinders on and just focused on themselves. So that selfishness is definitely a, a key aspect of the film. We've talked a lot about these two films. Is there more on Ghostbusters that we have to get into? I mean, is there, is there, any reason that we need to talk about Bill Murray, I suppose, or yeah, yeah, get into that. I'm guessing it's because Josh, you are actually a little bit negative on one Peter Vinkman. Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't say I'm negative, but I, it was one of the elements of Ghostbusters that I was let down on revisiting as an adult. And again, he's incredibly funny here. Um, plenty of hilarious moments. You've you've quoted some of them, and it's not just the lines, as you described well. It's the delivery, right? It's that Murray attitude. Um, but I do think when Sigourney Weaver's, when Dana at one point describes him as a game show host. What is that thing you're doing? It's technical. It's one of our little toys. That's the bedroom, but nothing ever happened in there. What a crime. You know, you don't act like a scientist. They're usually pretty stiff. You're more like a game show host. I do think that's more accurate to me now as an adult, that sort of derogatory description of the act that Venkman is pulling off um, than it was as a kid when I just thought he was the coolest, right? And And I think it would be more interesting. Murray, I think, is in on that element of it. I think he's playing that up because Murray doesn't ever want to be, you know, the straight hero of a film. But I don't know. And this goes back to where maybe Ghostbusters is a little more square. I think the movie as a whole and maybe as a, a big budget studio project wants him to be that. And so the movie kind of positions him as this. He's still a shaggy guy, but he's still the romantic 
heroic romantic lead in a lot of ways. And I think there's just some friction there between um, how much we're supposed to kind of, you know, fully get on board with some of the things Venkman is saying and how much we're saying supposed to say, well, this guy is kind of a jerk. You know, Murray wants us just to let him let us think he's a jerk and laugh at him still. And mm-hmm. the movie isn't quite as comfortable um, with him being that jerk. So I think there's just, there's just some friction there that I sense as an adult that I didn't as a kid where I didn't think he was a jerk at all. Well, first of all, Game shows are fun. <laughs> they can be really fun. And sometimes the host is a big reason why, Josh. So I don't know why you have to hate on that medium. But that line is one that stood out to me this time, too, as the movie just acknowledging it, just straight up acknowledging the persona. And that's pretty consistent with Murray's persona at this time and in a lot of other films. Yeah. And as much as the movie does definitely put him front and center, I mean, he is always they're always framed even if it's three of them in such a way that he's in front and there's no doubt that it's making him more of the hero i guess i don't have as much trouble with or see quite as much friction between that heroic side and how the movie actually views him like i think the movie understands and i think murray understands that he's the only one of this group who's actually a fraud and so everything that he's doing is always trying to overcompensate for that and i like that it comes through i kind of mentioned this when I was talking about Dana Barrett and Weaver's performance. I like that she does see through it. Yes, she does come around to him. I know that they they do develop kind of an attraction, but she doesn't really buy his act. She softens because he's relentless and there is some Murray charm there that comes through. But I, I love that she's resistant to him and kind of is like, I'm I'm so much more than you could ever be. That really comes through uh, in her performance. And I do think, too, that Maybe why this film works so well for him and Stripes is another good example of it. But just looking at Ghostbusters, he just gets to be Bill Murray the whole time, Mm -hmm. right? That thumbing nose at authority aspect that is something that goes throughout this entire film. The near constant showboating in front of crowds, too. Think about the end pre and post showdown with Gozer and him high fiving and joking on the streets. That could have been. That could have been outtakes from the film and Murray just doing what Murray does that end up making it into the film. I will say too, Kovacs here, the handheld kind of documentary style approach to those scenes is really effective, creates some urgency there that maybe otherwise we wouldn't really feel. But I I think it I guess it still works for me, Josh. Yeah. That Murray thing still works. Yeah, and overall it is. I mean, it, it's it's like it's not a bad Murray performance. I don't know though that I would put it in like a top five of his, even if we were maybe even if we were looking mm-hmm. at, you know, before he kind of made more of the dramatic turn later in his career. So just again, really like him in this, but I was surprised that I didn't go for it the way I did when I was young. You know who I, I the performance I Weaver's great, you're right. Two other performances we got to get to real quickly is is Aykroyd because he's the only mm-hmm. as Stance. Stance is like the only person who I can picture actually being in real life. You know, he's he's given a yes. real performance here. This is this is, a, is. a full bodied um delivery. And then Rick Moranis is just a treasure in this movie <laughs> because because I had watched it um, so recently, I kind of gave myself permission to um, focus on side things a little bit, you know, where you, where you don't have to kind of mm-hmm. take in everything. And so I just decided whenever Rick Moranis was on the screen, I'm not going to look at anything else, even if he's in the background. And I'm telling you, you would he delivers something at every moment, especially, you know, yeah. post-possession. Once he's possessed and he's just sniffing something in the corner of the frame. I, I mean, he's just so great here. So this, 
you know, if, if we're doing the uh, the pro-con thing, you're absolutely right. Much richer performances in Ghostbusters. Um, Murray is good. But yeah, Weaver and Moranis are really doing some special um, dramatic and comedic work, I'd say. Oh, Dana, it's you. Hello, Lewis. You got to come in here. You're missing a classic party. Yes, well, I would, Lewis, but I have a date made a date tonight? Well, I, I, I'm sorry, Lewis, I forgot. Well, that's okay. You can bring him along. Yeah, I'm with you completely on Aykroyd. That really stood out to me the last two times I've seen Ghostbusters. And I actually couldn't help but think this time when Ray says to Vinkman, you never studied. <laughs> that could be <laughs> that could be Aykroyd talking to Bill Murray. The look on his face is almost this meta moment where he's saying, you've never taken this seriously. Definitely. You've never taken comedy seriously. You just come out and wing it, damn you. Yep. But it always works. So so I love that moment. I think there are a lot of great moments that that trio absolutely has in this film. Yeah. Now, you mentioned how Murray is always positioned kind of at the front. And one really kind of awkward thing to watch now is how they position Ernie Hudson as this fourth Ghostbuster who, yes, I I get it. He comes in late. He's not, he's a tag along, right? It, it's kind of mm-hmm. built into the narrative, but he's also visually framed that way as the movie goes on in ways that are just like, okay, could you just, you know, maybe just let him either be in this scene too, or, or like <laughs> be lined up with the three of them and not kind of behind them. Uh, because the truth is Ernie Hudson gives, gives a good performance. I think he does. Winston is, He's distinctive from the other three in that he's he's just a guy with some common sense who is kind of looking for a job, right? And and so yep. that element that he brings is helpful in terms of comedy and drama. And um, the movie probably could have could have made more use of Ernie Hudson. Yeah, it it probably could have. It's one of those tough things to consider what Ghostbusters would be if it was more of a quartet than it was that trio. And I've read that in the original script. Winston was a bigger part of the movie and Hudson, I think, believes he was sidelined more by the studio because they wanted to package that trio together, that SNL kind of SCTV group. They could really promote that. And as we just said, the chemistry those guys have as a trio is inarguable. I will say that the movie could have made a mistake that a lot of movies from 1984 would have, which is to make his race his defining characteristic. And the movie doesn't do that. No. And in fact, the only moment where that comes up at all, the great line, seeing shit that will turn you white, that's a legitimately funny line that I think also, I mean, it does serve a key plot moment. It's his skepticism and his his conviction there in that moment that helps convince the mayor. And you said he's just an average guy. I think there is a function for that character in this film, even as marginal as it might be, where he's kind of like us if we got to come in off the street and be a Ghostbuster. I mean, Murray may be a fraud, but he is technically still a scientist. And it's as if we got to do what we always wanted to do as kids. We get to put on the proton pack and the jumpsuit and be a Ghostbuster. And and you're right, too, about him being sort of on the periphery. But I want to single out that scene in the ambulance on the bridge with Aykroyd. That was a real standout yeah. this time where he gets to be in the four and that whole conversation they have about Revelation 712 and the myths about the end of the world and the dead rising from the grave. That moment is really key to this film, Josh. It's yeah. really crucial because it completely it takes a film that's been otherwise pretty goofy and we think it's just about them 
capturing ghosts because, oh, they were probably always there to begin with. And now they're just finding them. It raises the stakes yeah, that carry definitely. the entire rest of the film. For sure. Right? So I'm, I'm glad he's there, even if maybe he wasn't utilized as well as he could have been. I do have one question. When Peter has the encounter with his girlfriend, Dana, when she's floating above the bed, he tells the guys later that he gave her a shot of Thorazine. And I'm wondering why Peter Venkman would have been coming to her place on that night, expecting to take her out on a date with a shot of Thorazine in his pocket. Yeah, that whole... What is what? What is that? <sighs> well, that whole scene, <laughs> let's just say it could have been played a lot worse, um, but it is a little uncomfortable. Let's just say the Thorazine was for the ghosts. <laughs> let's, let's say that. I'm going to go with that. I also love Aykroyd's Canadian heritage coming through when he says, oh, Venkman. Oh, Venkman, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get just just pure Canada, just maple syrup dripping all over that line reading. I'm sorry. <laughs> I caught that well, too. Is there more? I'm sure there's more. I know we have more notes, but maybe we'll we'll save it. Yeah, I think we could wrap it up there. Yeah, we'll get some feedback from our listeners, though we already know how listeners feel. 68 to 32, Josh, Ghostbusters wins. Deal with it. Yeah, the math, math doesn't matter, Adam. You know that. This is art. <laughs> It doesn't. You're you're one of those Americans who doesn't really want to be educated. You just For, want to watch junk and math, eat candy. Math is foreign, Adam. Foreign math. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ghostbusters and Gremlins are both available on demand on most platforms. They are also available on most Peltzer media players, free with any purchase of a smokeless ashtray. Ghostbusters Dan Aykroyd, he's one of the options in the current film spotting poll. Favorite buddy road trip comedies. He was in Blues Brothers, of course, with John Belushi. We'll have that poll when we come back, plus the final film in our Betty Davis marathon, Now Voyager. Stay with us. There's something strange in your neighborhood. death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend, Mr. Wayne. Liam Neeson and Christian Bale there in the trailer for 2005's Batman Begins. Next week, we continue our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review with the director's Batman Begins, and we're going to get to the rest of his Dark Knight trilogy. We have had some discussion internally, and I'm not saying we necessarily have the right answer here. I think listeners, some of them may disagree with this approach, but we decided to abandon the chronological approach to this Nolan filmography so we could consider these films as one group. And a big factor here, Josh, is not just that the movies pair well together and belong as sort of a set, obviously, but we did just consider or reconsider The Dark Knight a couple of years ago for its 10th anniversary. So we didn't feel like giving that an entire show made a whole lot of sense when we've already done that recently. So we're going to talk about Batman Begins as the next film 
in the Nolan Ooh review where it belongs in order, but then we'll jump ahead and look at the two Dark Knight films. Yeah, so far so good for me because I, I watched Batman Begins uh, one night and Dark Knight the next, and I, I really liked having that sort of um, close connection between them in my mind. Had to remind myself, of course, you know, the prestige came out in between those two because, Mm -hmm. and maybe we'll get into this, there is a big jump both in scale um, and um, ability of handling that scale, I think, from Batman Begins to The Dark Knight for Nolan as a director. So that'll be an interesting thing to talk about and keeping in mind, of course, that there will be films, prestige in between those two and Inception, of course, in between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Mm -hmm. So that'll be fun. We've talked about it before, but a little bit of trivia around Batman Begins. That was the first episode of film spotting then cinecast for a lot of listeners i'm guessing we have a lot of people who are still listening i hope we have at least a few who are still listening since then back in 05 but that show was episode number 18 and it wasn't planned we had no idea it was coming it just worked out that that was the most recent episode that had dropped when apple launched itunes So we had been producing shows for about three months before iTunes even existed. And then iTunes drops and everybody sees this film show called Cinecast and they listen to Sam and I talk about Batman Begins. So an important movie in the history of film spotting, Josh. Yes. And you've seen it a couple times since, I'm imagining, with all the other. Really? You never revisit it? Okay. I actually, yeah, I actually did just rewatch it for the first time since 05 with a couple of my kids this past weekend, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yes, we will talk. There will be plenty to say, and there will be plenty of homework to do for us and for listeners, because not only do we have to watch all three of these films for one show to talk about the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, but in two weeks, we're going to have a review of the fourth film in the Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon trip series. The Trip to Greece comes out on VOD May 22nd, and our current plan is to pair that review with our favorite moments from the trip movie. So the top five trip trilogy moments. We're hoping it's not just a top five of Bryden and Coogan impressions, but I make no promises whatsoever. But this does mean I have to rewatch all three of those movies to set me up for the trip to Greece and get in the right headspace, Josh. A lot of movies. Yeah, those impressions would be a bad idea. Are you really going to revisit all of them? All of them. I don't know if I will. I've enjoyed them all, but I might just pop in to pick my moments here or there. We'll see what happens. Looking ahead to that show, we have the new film spotting poll question. We're asking about the venerable comedy subgenre, the buddy road trip. We're asking you simply, what is your favorite buddy road trip comedy? And Josh, the options are... Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in The Blues Brothers, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber from The Farrelly Brothers, then De Niro and Grodin in Midnight Run, which is still in the film spotting pantheon. Still there. Why why the still in our notes here, Adam? Has there been some debate whether it should be removed? I mean, you've been here for some of those jokes along the way that it's one of those films that maybe just feels a little out of place in the greatest films of all time or the greatest films that... Film spotting just considers so personal that we're not going to include them in any of our top five lists. But the fact is, for all three former hosts of this show, if you consider me with Sam and with Maddie, Midnight Run is one of those films for the 80s that we just adored and watched constantly. And 
it's personal. That's why we put it in the Pantheon. In the Pantheon. Still in the Pantheon. All right. It's going to stay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Steve Martin and John Candy, another buddy road trip comedy pair here in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That one directed by John Hughes. We're also including Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church in Alexander Payne's Sideways. And yes, if you want to vote for the original The Trip from 2011, that is an option. Other will be a category in case, I don't know, maybe Cannonball Run is what yeah. you're thinking. You're a big Cannonball Run big, guy. Uh, Cannonball Run, not sure if I ever saw it. I prefer Cannonball Run 2, Do Josh, you? actually. Do you? Well, yeah. okay. You'll have to tell me more about that at another time. Tommy Boy, I don't think I've seen Tommy Boy either. Um, really? No, I, I, I don't know. Possible. I don't it's know. It's funny. Okay. I'll it's take, worth seeing. I'll take your word for it, but I think I'm going to vote... It's hard not to vote Blues Brothers. I mean, that's hmm. that Going was a childhood with Chicago's own childhood favorite of mine. Though planes, trains, and automobiles is tempting. I'll say. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't seen Tommy Boy since I was in college. I think, but I don't think of it as that much of a road trip movie. So I'm not sure it really qualifies. Definitely a buddy movie. And the original wording of this poll had us asking for your favorite road trip comedy. We didn't have the buddy thrown in there, but then that opens it up to family road trip movies like Vacation or Little Miss Sunshine. And obviously we're trying to tie this back specifically to the trip movies. Yes. And, you know, those films that are just two dudes driving around, they're on some kind of mission where hijinks and shenanigans and possibly mayhem follow in their wake. So that's what we're after in this poll question. And for me, it's in the Pantheon for a reason. Midnight Run's the choice. Midnight Run's the right answer. Yeah, with, for me, the trip as the runner-up, Josh. All right. I'm going to have to watch Midnight Run again. I, I have fond memories of it. Not a personal favorite for me, like like the rest of you. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I'm still a fan. Sam did throw out that what this list makes clear is that someone needs to make a female buddy road trip comedy. And yes, I'm sure everyone immediately thinks about Thelma and Louise. Definitely a buddy road trip movie. I'm not sure it's really a comedy. But if you have a plot that you would like to send over the synopsis for, maybe your ideal casting, maybe it'll get the film spot in green light. And maybe maybe make that your other vote. Put that in there. There you go. Throw things yeah. off and uh, and we'll uh, we'll read those titles down the road. Yeah. Feedback at filmspotting.net is where you can email us and you can vote in the poll now at filmspotting.net. As always, we do love your comments. So last show, Adam, we did play a little Massacre Theater, the part of the program where we perform a scene from a movie. You get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. In case listeners missed it, here's a bit of last week's performance. What are you looking for, Peter? A date for the weekend? No, I'm just interested in you. You know, what do you want? What do you do? What do you like about? What kind of men are you interested in? What do you do for fun? I'm not going to give any other clues because there have been complaints, Adam, that the clue I gave on last yeah. episode was too much. Now, see, I can't, too easy. I can't make anybody happy. You come into the show all worried. No one's ever going to guess this. They'll never know what movie this is from. <laughs> so I offer a little hint. Now people yep. are complaining that it was too easy for them. So if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location of feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline for this one. Monday, May 11th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries 
and we'll announce it on next week's show. Every two weeks over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you'll find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, the hosts of that great show. And this week they've got a new double feature, Kitty Green's The Assistant, one of the best films of this not-at-all-normal movie year, I would say, and definitely at this point a Golden Brick candidate as this is the first Kitty Green film that I've seen. It is now available on VOD on most platforms if you haven't seen The Assistant yet. And NPS is pairing that with Mike Nichols' 1988 workplace comedy Working Girl, starring Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver again. All three of them are really great in that Mike Nichols movie, I think. So I'm looking forward to hearing that episode. Yeah, another nudge for me to catch up with The Assistant. I'll have to do that before this episode comes out. New episodes of The Next Picture Show, they post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And we do have more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. As a Film Spotting patron, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live show pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and most importantly, a monthly bonus episode. May's bonus episode is going to be a We Were Probably Wrong Once discussion of Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I'm finally, hopefully going to see the light And I'm going to understand what all the fuss is about with you Wes Anderson stands out there. Because I love his work. Overall, I feel like I'm a big fan. Not quite as big as you, Josh. And this is the one film that has always kind of been elusive to me. You're not a member of the Zissou Society is what you're telling me, Adam. This this is the one. This is the one. If if you go for Life Aquatic, then you get in. (laughs) I want to be a member so bad. We also do lean on our film spotting family from time to time to help us plan future shows. So basically, yes, you're actually paying us for us to make you do work for us. It's really great. <laughs> I don't know I if think that, you should I definitely sign up. You want to sell it, Adam. <laughs> well, and yet there are some satisfied patrons out there, Josh, like a new one we heard from this week, John Corbett. He's in Newport, Rhode Island. Hey guys, just wanted to show my appreciation for my favorite podcast. I've been listening on and off since 2011, and I absolutely love your analysis, conversations, and agreements slash disagreements about movies. I tend to like a lot of the same movies as Josh. How about that? But I appreciate you too, Adam. You have highlighted Aww. so many great movies that I would have probably never seen. A Prophet, Minding the Gap, Eighth Grade, to name just a few. I'm embarking on making my first short film this summer, and I owe you guys so much for expanding my film universe in the past 10 years. Hope the donation helps you guys keep doing what you do. Thank you so much for that, John, and best of luck with the project. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can sign up to be a family member. What man would ever look at me and say, I want you? I'm fat. My mother doesn't approve of dieting. Look at my shoes. My mother approves of sensible shoes. Look at the books on my shelves. My mother approves of good, solid books. I am my mother's well-loved daughter. I am her companion. I am my mother's servant. My mother says, my mother, my mother, my mother! That's Betty Davis with Yes, Mommy Issues in Now Voyager, the fourth and final film in our Betty Davis marathon. We began with 1934's Of Human Bondage, then went to 1938's Jezebel and followed that up with 1940's Dark Victory. Here, Now Voyager, directed by Irving Rapper, it was released in October of 1942, nominated for three Oscars and won one of those for Max Steiner's score. 
Davis received her seventh nomination for Best Actress for Now Voyager, and she would go on to receive three more nominations between 1945 and 1953. Yeah, I think if I saw this right, it was her fifth Oscar nomination in a row. And that seventh is if you're counting the write-in votes she got for Of Human Bondage back Uh, when that came out. So sixth officially, but I think you could also say her seventh. A lot. At least we know it was a lot. The film, now Voyager, based on a best-selling novel, which had come out just one year before, and in it, Davis plays Charlotte Vale, so a young woman who's deeply repressed thanks to her domineering mother, who's also deeply repressed and played by Gladys Cooper. Charlotte is committed very early on in the film to a sanitarium by a kindly doctor, played by Claude Rains, and... After undergoing a dramatic physical transformation, if not entirely a psychological one, she goes on a long cruise to South America, where she meets and falls in love with an unhappily married man, played by Paul Henreid. We have, to help us close out this marathon, Nathaniel Myers, once again, who has been with us all marathon long. He is going to give us another setup, this time for Now Voyager. Hey, film spotting. You know, I'm sorry to see another marathon come to an end. But I've taken some comfort in seeing Davis survive at least one of these things. And she's quite good in Now Voyager, as she has been throughout. I think it's particularly true once her character, Charlotte Vale, sets sail, and Davis is allowed to play the nuance of having Charlotte herself see herself in a new role, literally in someone else's clothes. And I think it's even more true once she returns home with a newfound confidence, one in which she can confront her mother, the perfect melodramatic villain played perfectly by Gladys Cooper. They told me before you were born that my recompense for having a late child was the comfort the child would be to me in my old age, especially if she was a girl. And on your first day home, after six months' absence, you behave like this. Mother, wait for me and I'll go down with you. Thank you. I'm not sure I enjoyed any part of the movie more than the interactions between the two of them, alongside Charlotte's quirky co-conspirator, Nurse Dora. As for the movie as a whole, well, I've been grateful for the way this entire marathon, like the recent Dietrich marathon, has reframed my understanding of classical Hollywood cinema. So often I think of that period in film history as one in which the studios were codifying film production and aesthetics, seeking to weed out from their movies any potential infelicities. But whether it be the superimpositions of, of human bondage, or the tonal ambiguities of Jezebel, or the large orders of prognosis negative of Dark Victory, I've appreciated the bold, if sometimes baggy, qualities of these films those times when the films have been most surprising, sometimes to amusing effect, sometimes to dramatic effect. In Now Voyager, it's Davis's Groucho Marx eyebrows, and the film's whiplash narrative flashbacks, and Tina. But also more successfully, it's the film's bold pan to Charlotte's reflection as she sits in a Brazilian cafe, trying to understand who she is. And it's a scene of Charlotte breaking off her engagement with Elliot Livingston, played relatively and refreshingly undramatically. And it's the complicated feminism of Charlotte, in the end, taking on the role of mother and caregiver while at the same time refusing the conventional role of romantic partner. Adam, Josh, I'm wondering, then, what surprised you in Now Voyager? 
And since we have reached the end of the Davis Marathon, did anything in the film, whether surprisingly or not, change the way you understand Davis as a performer? Thanks so much, guys. Well, really a perfect place to end this marathon with those questions from Nathaniel. I think you're definitely seeing some new notes for Davis that she has to hit here as Charlotte Vale, at least based on what we've seen within this marathon. I've talked a lot about that malevolent magnetism being a hallmark of these performances and the way she confounds us as audience members and her other characters, her rivals, by playing characters who all on some level and in different ways, you could say deserve our sympathies, but she just refuses to allow us to pity her. There's just this near constant defiance of others' feelings that we get from Davis's characters. I think we do see that still here a little bit in Charlotte, except the spite is turned completely inward, right? And the kind of moments that I'm sure we'll get to in our awards here in a little bit that probably define Davis throughout this marathon aren't really on display at all in Now Voyager. They didn't seem to me to be anyway. And by the end of the film, we've actually gone from malevolence to something really convincingly maternal, I'd say. And of course, Davis, everything she does is convincing on screen. And I'll really give credit to Nathaniel Josh for highlighting those kind of weird or unusual aspects of the film, the things that are maybe more ostentatious choices, whether they all work or not, they do force us to consider the ways it isn't totally conventional. And that isn't to say I think that Irving Rapper's direction here is really astonishing in any way, but the reflection sequence in the cafe that Nathaniel mentions is one that certainly stands out. How about the shot where she's about to go out with her new boyfriend, the guy who wants to marry her, Elliot Livingston, and the camera just sits behind her mother, who's standing up waiting for her to come out of the bathroom or whatever, come out of whatever room she's getting ready in, and we just wait behind the mother's head, and it really builds some awkward tension there. And he mentioned the breakup, too. The surprise for me, really, in terms of this film, was how relatively bold it was in terms of its sexual suggestiveness. We mentioned that repressive aspect here. There's some real hints, and this is about all this movie is going to do at this time in 42, but at least it's really strongly hinting at true carnality, right? And the cigarette gesture that I think rightfully became so famous and so famously associated with this movie, Paul Henry taking out the two cigarettes that he's lit up and handing one to her. I mean, I, I never took any psych classes, Josh, but I mean, I feel like Freud would have a field day with that. It's it's not just gallantry. It's really, really suggestive. And there's that sequence when we talk about repressiveness and this suggestiveness. How about when she does break up with Livingston? What causes the breakup? It is a really odd scene. And I was looking for the exact quote for my notes and it revealed something to me. So the bit we get in the film is her basically saying, I'd like you to take me out some night to dinner this week to some bohemian place and mm -hmm. give me a very gay time, <laughs> cocktails and champagne, and then make love to me. And then she adds something like, well, if I could just get rid of some of my inhibitions just for once, I might be able to have more confidence. The book, the book that this movie was based on, when I was looking for this quote, I found this passage in the book and it's lifted straight from it, Josh, except there's one difference. There's one word that they took out for the movie. She says, and give me a very gay time, cocktails and champagne, and then make violent love to me. Hmm. 
I mean, that's that is really what she's suggesting. They obviously yeah. couldn't get that into the script, but that is what she's suggesting. And that is an element to this film we haven't seen as much, maybe going back initially to a human bondage. And and even that, then they really have to dance around it. Right. And here we get it much more out in the open. Yeah, that makes me really want to read this novel. The It was written by Olive Higgins Prouty, P-R-O-U-T-Y. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but because I sensed there was a much richer story to be told here that now Voyager had a little trouble fitting into a movie's running time. Mm-hmm. There are definite segments of Charlotte's life that um, could have been a film all of their own, you know, and we kind of jarringly jump from one to the other, I feel, so that there's a little inconsistency in character, not due to anything in Davis's performance, um, but more in the structure of the film and the narrative. And I just watched this thinking, you know, I bet this is a really rich novel, the original source material. I, I think it's interesting looking at now Voyager in light of the other films we've been watching of Davis with Davis Adam is that this is the one that's probably most on her side the whole time, which is something we've considered. And so I think that Mm -hmm. is a distinction and it does require her to maybe drop some of those notes, the malevolence that you mentioned that we had gotten used to. Um, And the question is, what is, what does it replace it with? What does she replace it with? And I think you're right. There is a maternal streak here that comes in um, when she befriends this younger girl towards the end of the film. That is interesting to see. And I think that's, um, you could see that she has that side of her, that quality to her as an actress, because it's quite convincing and quite touching. I thought it was, but what it, what it sort of clarified for me was something that, you know, back to Nathaniel's question about Davis as an actress and our understanding of her after a couple of films now, I had, as someone who, you know, had seen her in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and other stuff too, kind of always had this question of camp with her in mind and knowing her reputation. And mm. now Voyager was helpful in that I saw, and camp for some people is is fine. It's what they want. It's, it's what I liked about the prognosis negative line, right, in Dark Victory. Uh, yeah. But I do think it could be she could stray into it in a way that didn't serve the film. And now Voyager shows when that would happen. And it's not her fault. It's the films. So for example, the director here, Irving Rapper, I think he, he doesn't trust Davis to bring the drama that by now he should have known she could bring. And he gives us a lot of camera pushes. He gives us a lot of close-ups of wringing hands. And when you double down on that sort of stuff, then her performances can start to seem melodramatic or maybe even Mm -hmm. campy. So there's a balance that a Davis film I feel like needs to have. Davis doesn't need a camera push, right? She just doesn't need it. She can do that work with her face, with her line delivery. And similarly, when the dialogue gets obvious, and I think the screenplay here it can be very speechifying and it can yeah. tell us about characters rather than have us learn about characters. The screenwriter is Casey Robinson. When that happens, she gets a climactic speech about her independence. That's when she drifts into the arena of camp, when everything's getting doubled up, right? Mm. But if a movie kind of gives her some subtler dialogue to work with, if it gives her the cinematic space to say it in, then her fierceness feels in perfect balance. And of the films we saw, for me, now Voyager, that balance was a little bit off. I think that's all fair. I think the only difference for me, Josh, is I saw her as somehow able to completely overcome with her conviction and with her groundedness and really just with her presence. She could overcome 
everything that rapper might have been doing <laughs> to amp up the melodrama. I think that's in a lot of ways why I consider this as my favorite Davis performance mm. or the best one. We'll get to our awards in a moment, not because it's my favorite film or it really is my favorite performance of hers to watch. But I just thought in a lot of ways it had the highest degree of difficulty because she didn't get to go to the usual places that a Betty Davis would go to. And she was at odds, I think, at some points with the direction, maybe, and having to keep it from just going completely over the cliff. And I say that deliberately because, I mean, talk about a scene in a movie where you're kind of going along and everything's working pretty well. And then you get that terrible car ride with Giuseppe. Yeah up the mountain road rough and it crashes and the movie just crashes with it for a good 15 20 minutes right was it meant to be comedic or not because it was i think so i couldn't quite tell i think the you know the language difference i think was definitely they were going for comedy there but yes. then you get the crash and even afterwards it's like they kept going with the language routine they but did they also yeah. just almost died yeah that was yeah. that was a little tough no it's it's really bad now, I made the joke on Letterboxd. I, of course, had to make the comparison... <laughs> with this film to both Psycho and She's All That. <laughs> because if you ever wondered, if you weren't otherwise inclined to see this movie just because it was part of our marathon, but now you wonder what She's All That mixed with Psycho would look like, well, now Voyager is your answer. But jokes aside, I feel like it legitimately had to be an influence on Hitchcock with Psycho, right? I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's, of course, easy to say, yes, there's the domineering mother, but lots of movies have domineering mother characters, especially from this time. But I'm thinking about the early close-up. It's really an extreme close-up we get of mother sitting in that chair. Yes. This is before we've even, I think, met Charlotte. She hasn't come down the stairs yet. And she's got that stern face and it triggered flashbacks for me immediately to Psycho. And we even get a superimposition at one point. We have the famous one at the end of Psycho. Mm -hmm. We get one here of, I think it's Charlotte's face over her mother's in a key psychological moment. And then all of those shots of her in the chair by her window. And she's always talking in that same scolding voice, like the one we hear in Psycho. It's almost like Hitchcock saw Now Voyager and thought, wait a second, all of you... All of you people think this is romantic. <laughs> this is this is some beautiful, if largely unrequited, love story, and we've got this tale of a fragile, troubled woman who's blossoming into a confident maternal figure. He's like, "This is a horror movie. <laughs> you're you're going to ignore all the psychosexual trafficking." I mean, she takes the daughter of the man she loves and tries to raise her as her own, even suggesting that the daughter use the same pet name. That her father yeah. uses for her. Yeah. I mean, these are some deeply messed up, fascinating people. And it's like Hitchcock just said, I'm going to make the real movie out of this. Well, and you're right that Davis, you know, what I describe her as maternal and that it's, it's moving. She plays it as if it, there's nothing wrong with it. And she sells it. Right. We, we think it. like this is yeah. this is a good situation for this girl. But if you right. state back, I mean, this is where it's so absurd. This is where Claude Rains doctor maybe needed to step in and say, uh, OK, <laughs> we're, we're crossing some boundaries here. So it's also in as you mentioned the framing um, and the blocking in those scenes of those scenes of 
her talking to her mother in her mother's room where we often don't see her mother's face, right? We're, we're seeing the back yeah. of her head. There's There are gothic shadows. The lighting emphasizes the um, the size of that bedroom and how they're both kind of at odds and, and positioning themselves against each other. So yeah, there are definitely almost horror movie elements to this that Hitchcock must have seen and decided to play up. And, you know, the, the performance worked a little bit better for you. I, I think here's an element of the filmmaking that is in concert with what I think is a good performance by Davis. And that's in the costume design. It was, it was more interesting for me to trace Charlotte's transformations through the costumes than mm-hmm. through the jarring narrative jumps that we get. The costumes, I should say, are overseen by Ori Kelly. And when we first meet Charlotte, described by another character, I should say, as, quote, a fat lady with the brows and all the hair, um, it's not just the, the you know, the, the eyebrows and the wig that she's wearing, but also this matronly print dress, mm-hmm. which has been chosen for her by her mother. And that's the key, right? Because when Charlotte gets to the cruise... She has the this glamorous wardrobe because this woman named Renee has given Charlotte her space on the cruise, her cabin, and has left her clothes there for her to wear. So it's it's flashy, beautiful stuff, but it's still not Charlotte's. She's wearing another woman's clothes. And I think Paul Henry's Jerry even says at one point, he notices that there's like a note from Renee pinned to the back of Charlotte's dress. Yeah. So she's still kind of not coming into herself. Uh, but then we get that finally happens later on when it's another showdown in the bedroom with mother, right? She comes, yeah. she says to her, um, mm-hmm. you must give me complete freedom, Charlotte says. And as she's saying that, she comes around the corner wearing this new black dress. She's purchased it for herself. Here we're back to the reef and the sexuality of the film, Adam, it features this plunging V-neck down the front. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom, Charlotte puts on this burst of camellias, which of course we know are a gift from Jerry um, that he sent her discreetly. So I think the costume design does so- some of that sort of, they're beautiful, noticeable costumes, but it's also subtle in a way that some of the other filmmaking isn't that is working in concert with Davis's performance because Davis moves differently in each of these costumes, right? When she's wearing that black dress, she is crossing that room towards her mother with a sense of absolute power. And she moves completely differently at the beginning when she's wearing that print dress. So, so I did like that detail on now Voyager. No, I love it. And I'm so glad you mentioned Ori Kelly. I've mentioned the designer before because I don't typically pay attention much. That's not something you've probably heard over 775 whatever episodes of the show where we devote a lot of time to whoever made the costumes. But in this marathon, from Jezebel on, they've all been Ori Kelly, and they are standouts every time. You're right, not only in terms of just kind of the grandeur of them, but the way they inform her character in all three of these films, I think, are really astonishing. And I will throw in a quick note about the Max Steiner score. Steiner has also done at least one other film in this marathon, Dark Victory. And I read somewhere that they were filming a big scene and she stopped and said to the director, what are you going to do with the music during the scene? Is there going to be accompaniment? And he kind of dismissed her. And she basically said, if I'm going up these stairs, I want to know if I'm going alone or if Max Steiner is going to be there with me. Huh, you know, and fascinating. that's the kind of thing Davis, right, as an actress would actually think about. Yeah. Like, what do I have to convey? Yeah. And how is it going to be different or not if I'm going to have that support, the emotional manipulation of the audience? She, she was a formidable enough actress to probably 
not want music ever right. to go along with her performances, right? Didn't need it. And unfortunately, I feel like it was gratuitous here a lot in this film. I felt like it was one of the elements ramping up the melodrama, at least its employment of it. Yeah, no, I would agree. That's that's exactly, you know, that's a good example of what I was trying to get at before is just um, Davis could have gone up those stairs without any ostentatious camera work, any ostentatious music, and even the costumes, right? She, but, right. but if she knew what tools were at her disposal, then the register that's it. could be shifted appropriately. Yeah. We'll transition into our Betty Davis Awards here with just a little bit of listener feedback on Now Voyager. We haven't had a whole lot throughout this marathon, so I wanted to include this note from Hallie Mitchell in Martinez, California. She said, I'm looking forward to your Now Voyager review as a kid. I used to check it out from the library over and over, but I don't think I really started to appreciate it until high school. I just watched it again a couple of months ago. Now a 27-year-old in somewhat similar circumstances to Charlotte Vale, and it kind of surprised me. Betty Davis is always great, and I feel this performance, though on the more subtle side, relatively speaking, is still powerful, but I can't wait for your take. On a side note, I'm not a smoker. I've never smoked and I never will smoke. That being said, is it just me or is Paul Henry's lighting technique pretty hot? <laughs> I agree. Maybe it is just me. I did always have a thing for him as Victor Laszlo and Casablanca. He was also in a version of, of Human Bondage, funnily enough. As always, many thanks to you both and the gang. That's Hallie. And I did. I watched it with my daughter, Sophie. And after that last light up i did turn to her and i said smoking's cool <laughs> you should smoke kid just like that yeah <laughs> it's iconic as sophie would like to say and it definitely is in this film so let's get to the peepers we want to thank andrew willis in atlanta for giving us that title for our betty davis awards though i'm going to say it andrew you will always be andrew willis from vincennes indiana to me, I don't know what's up with this moving to Atlanta business. Four films. I think we've mentioned all the titles over the course of this discussion, but of Human Bondage, Jezebel, Dark Victory, Now Voyager, we have, I think, five categories, our usual categories, and one idiosyncratic one that matches up with what we saw from Davis throughout this marathon. And we'll go ahead and start it off with the best non-Davis performance. Usually we're talking about a supporting player here. We're looking at anybody who wasn't Betty Davis in the marathon, your options would be primarily in Of Human Bondage, Leslie Howard as Philip, Francis D. as Sally, Kate Johnson as Nora, or in Jezebel, Henry Fonda, George Brent, Margaret Lindsay as Amy. Dark Victory gave us George Brent again, Humphrey Bogart, Geraldine Fitzgerald, maybe even Ronnie Reagan, Josh, and now Voyager gave us Paul Henry, Claude Rains, and Gladys Cooper as Mrs. Vale. Where are you going? You know, I, I did like Ronnie Reagan in Dark Victory. I, I thought he had a compellingly sleazy presence there. And Paul Henry definitely brought a Casablanca-ish sense of unrequited romance to Now Voyager. I liked his performance quite a bit as well. But I'm going to go with one of the two George Brent performances that we did get in this mm -hmm. marathon, not as the doctor in Dark Victory, but as a Southern gentleman in Jezebel. I just thought he was really charming as Buck Cantrell for the first maybe half of that movie. I preferred him to Henry Fonda's press um, yeah. and I thought she should have just gone that direction. But then... And, you know, um, Brent does this in his performance. He slowly reveals how rooted in ugly tradition Buck is towards women a little bit. You get that sense definitely toward the institution of slavery um, when his politics come out in the open. But there's still a lot of conflict there about the character. So when that duel goes bad and he gets the wrong end of it, Brent 
almost makes you feel bad for Buck, even though you know at that point you yeah. really shouldn't. So I, I thought George Brent, uh, I like that performance in Jezebel. Yeah, me too. I didn't expect us to be aligned here. I also did like him quite a bit in Dark Victory, but I went with him as Buck Cantrell oh, nice. in Jezebel. Yeah, this Southern CAD character. I think he does have to convey that he's smart enough to recognize Julie's playing him mm-hmm. at the end while also being unable to overlook the perceived offense to his honor and to his heritage, right? So he's a dope. He's a dope, but he knows he's a dope. And also earlier in the film, when he turns her down, when he realizes that she wants him to escort her to this big ball just to make Henry Fonda jealous and get people talking, and he turns her down, I love the smooth way that he does that and also who says no to betty davis ever yeah and we were you know that's one of the questions we had early on is what um male co-stars were going to be able to hold the screen with her and that's a moment that shows that george brent was going to be able to do that yeah i also did consider geraldine fitzgerald as Anne in dark victory and i considered nathaniel myers pick while i think there's something to be said for some of davis's male counterparts i was particularly taken by george brent more so for the turn from jezebel to dark victory than for either one of his individual performances i think her only real match was gladys cooper as mother Vale. no fall down the stairs has ever been so devilishly intentional (laughs) well and one of the all-time i mean again talk about straight into camp territory death scenes oh my goodness i mean that (laughs) slow slide down into the chair was was something sophie watched this whole film with me and she's watched at least parts of dark victory and at one point during this i think it's when davis comes home when charlotte comes back after her big transformation sophie's like I can't stand how little anybody in these films knows about medicine, right? It's just like, don't speak too loud and she'll die. And then she does. Yes. It's it's quite dramatic. And it, yeah, but it also brings it really up the is. question of like, um, you know, the other elements that Davis is working at when you have a co-star who's in that register, does that make Davis's, you know, performance mm. appear bigger and perhaps campier? I don't know, but that's a right. that's a big scene. <laughs> Best Davis performance then: Mildred Rogers in *Of Human Bondage*, Julie Marsden in *Jezebel*, Judith Traherne in *Dark Victory*, or Charlotte Vale in *Now Voyager*. Judith Traherne for me, I just think she shows the most range here. Um, I know as we discussed, she's doing something different in *Now Voyager* than the other films, but Think about who she plays in Dark Victory. She plays this brazen society woman at the start. She plays then a stricken patient, a deceived friend, this rager against the dying of the light, and sort of ends in a place of being a noble martyr, in a sense. So seeing her hit all of those notes is is just hugely entertaining. She also gets to play off, as we were talking about, some interesting co-stars here, and I think they are nicely matched to what she's doing. Geraldine Fitzgerald as her friend, Humphrey Bogart as a stable manager, and, and another one of those early male co-stars who we know can hold the screen alongside her. Again, I liked Reagan and George Brent also as her doctor. So yeah, with Judith, Judith just had the most interesting arc uh, for me and Davis was up to each step of the journey. Nathaniel says perhaps the most challenging of the awards to decide, given that something like Now Voyager gives her a chance to show off some range, which she does well in a dark victory. She skillfully refashions some of her trademark qualities for a more sympathetic character. But honestly, I think Jezebel offers Davis the role she can make the most of in a film that is the best in the marathon. It's simply getting out of her way. And for these reasons, my award goes to Davis as Julie Marsden. And I'm with Nathaniel. There are those extremes, right? If you set bondage aside, 
because it is her only supporting turn in this marathon and consider just those three leads. Jezebel is her biggest and her least sympathetic performance. Voyager is on the other end, as we talked about, the most subtle, the most sympathetic. And Dark Victory is somewhere in the middle, really nicely combining elements of the two. So definitely considered choosing it as you did, Josh. But I'm with Nathaniel. Julie in Jezebel is Davis just in her full glory. The juiciest performance, the most confounding and fascinating character in, spoiler alert here as we get through the categories, the best movie of the marathon by far, Jezebel. So if I had to say to someone, here's how you explain Betty Davis. If someone just was totally clueless and needed one film to explain her allure, for me, it would be Jezebel. And that's why I'm going with Julie Marsden. Julie Child, I'm so sorry. For heaven's sake, don't be telling with me now. Do you think I want to be wept over? I've got to think, to plan, to fight. But you can fight marriage. Marriage, is it? To that washed out little Yankee. Chris is mine. He's always been mine. And if I can't have it, why, Buck? What about then the best glare? So this isn't a normal category for our marathon awards, but it does make sense with Betty Davis and those eyes. How do you choose from so many great options? Oh, and there were a ton. I mean, right away we got one in Of Human Bondage towards the end during that really hate-filled speech she gives to Leslie Howard's Philip. A lot of glare there. Uh, she also tosses a great glare at Humphrey Bogart while he's coming onto her in Dark Victory just after she lights a cigarette. I love that one. But I'm going to give the award to a suggestion that Daryl K. Patterson made on my Larson on Film Facebook page. Here's Daryl. Out of the four films you've reviewed, I would vote for Jezebel when Julie Marsden gave Preston Dillard the glare when she found out he was married. The framing of that high angle shot while Julie kneeled on the floor beneath Preston as her dress billowed like a swamp lily and that glorious close up of the glare itself was magnificent. Director William Wyler is a master. And Daryl has a question too is this going to be the next marathon, William Wyler? That would be fun to do. So, this moment, which I agree with Daryl, it's my pick meeting Amy in Jezebel. It's, mm-hmm. it's not her wildest glare. You know, this isn't the eyes aren't the biggest right. here. But for me, watching her try to rein that in is what makes this moment so tantalizing. And we talked about this a little bit in our Jezebel review, how she's looking back and forth from Henry Fonda's press to Margaret Lindsay's Amy after this reveal that they're married. And she's trying to get her bearing. She's trying to regain her emotions. You see little flashes of that glare about to come out at press. And then you see her suppress it because she doesn't want to give herself away. At least she doesn't want to give herself away yet, right? The That other great moment we talked about, the I've got to think, to plan, to fight, that comes shortly after. And you get a really good glare when she says that line. But it's this mm-hmm. in-between moment in Jezebel, uh, along with Daryl, that that I really liked. Yeah, that is so good. And I think that sequence that you and Daryl touched on is not only one of the best Davis glares from the marathon, it's one of the best scenes from the entire marathon. So a great pick. I'm going with a moment from dark victory. And it's a throwdown between her and Brent that happens maybe about three quarters of the way through the film when she explains how ashamed she is, that she kind of fell for any of this stuff, really. And this is this is her at that most scornful. And Davis busts out all of her go-to moves. She squints them just a little bit, like she's seeing right through George Brent. <laughs> and when she says, 
to watch with those scientific eyes. She budges them out on the word eyes just perfectly for emphasis. And then we get this close up of her at one point where she's looking down at him, which is perfectly setting up that majestic moment when the eyes come up to meet Brent with that look of hatred on her face. And then the closing line when Brent is saying to her to live our lives so we can meet death whenever it comes. And there's a pause and he says beautifully and finally in the pause, it cuts from Brent back to Davis. So she's listening to him as he finishes this little speech and the combination of her eyes with this little smirk on her face just expresses so much contempt, Josh. It's it's so good. And I will link to this scene and some of the other moments that we're talking about here in the awards over on our marathons page. Scornful is is a great word to use to describe, you know, her performances in general, I think. But yeah, the way she uses her eyes. Absolutely. You mentioned of human bondage and that you disgust me moment. That's Nathaniel's pick. He says the camera cuts to Davis, eyes wide, eyebrows raised and almost immediately cuts back to Carrie subtly but clearly beginning to cower at her glare suffice it to say (laughs) i could sympathize with carrie and i think we're right there with you nathaniel so then what's the best scene or moment from this marathon and it goes without saying it had to include betty davis i mean the one that i will probably think of if not first, pretty soon after, years from now, is her declaration in Dark Victory, where she says, I think I'll have a large order of prognosis negative. I just, I love it, but I don't <laughs> know that it does her justice because it reflects her campy side, right? The the side she's kind of been known for a little bit, which is fun and I enjoy, but I don't know it's representative of her full talent. So I'm going to go with a later Dark Victory moment. And this is when her bravado in the face of certain death comes up against the reality of it. This is the nightclub scene. She's drunkenly listening and then trying to sing along to Oh, Give Me Time for Tenderness. As I said, when we talked about um, Dark Victory, it's hard to watch Betty Davis admit defeat, but there's something fascinating about getting to watch her do that. And I think especially after a marathon of powerhouse moments in which she is brazenly defiant or scornful or some variation on those words, there is something especially poignant for me about this one, which kind of captures her meeting her match and and recognizing that and admitting that. Hmm. I'm going with a scene and a moment that I devoted a lot of time to during our discussion of Jezebel, so I won't repeat it here, but Julie's party entrance, complete with that little riding stick flip of her dress that she does. It's that moment, including the moment before it, when she strolls up to her party on a wild stallion and and gets down and just goes in just so gracefully with that riding stick. But then everything that follows, the way she just owns the room and Weiler allows her to own the room for the next three to five minutes, that was just wonderful stuff. And Jezebel is also where Nathaniel went for his favorite scene or moment from the marathon. A perfect compliment to your best glare, Josh. Midway through, Davis's Julie Marsden deigns to supplicate herself to Henry Fonda's press only to find out he's married, made the fool. She walks off and vows to reclaim press for herself. Press is mine, she proclaims. He's always been mine, and I can't have. She breaks off as she sees Buck Cantrell coming down the stairs. That's it. That's the moment when schemes are devised, Nathaniel mm. says. Yep. <laughs> Let's close it out then with the best picture. What was the best film of these four for you? I think we're all going to be in agreement here, Adam. I went with Jezebel. I just think... It was the strongest overall film. I mean, even if I'd rank Davis's performance in Dark Victory a little bit higher than in Jezebel, I think this movie is stronger. I think William Wyler 
has a lot to do with that. Probably the most accomplished director of the marathon, I think we could say. We mentioned some of his other films, The Best Years of Our Lives, Roman Holiday. And I also liked the complications that we spent a lot of time discussing. This question of whether the movie is condemning Julie, her character, or is is it redeeming her? How does it see her? How does Davis see the character and play the character? How might those things be different? All of that made Jezebel really interesting. And as for that performance, as for Davis, I think especially once Julie takes the gloves off <laughs> at that moment that Nathaniel described in his um, his pick, it's just, it's so great. The performance is so great from that point on. It's ferocious. It's unhinged. And maybe even just maybe at the end, here's another question. It's a little bit sympathetic too. So that's, that's yeah. in the eye of the beholder, but at another way, Jezebel is compelling. Yeah, I love Jezebel. It's the real standout for me. It was Nathaniel's pick as well. And if no names were attached to these films and you said one of the four marathon films is directed by a real revered Hollywood director and the others were maybe less reputable or less respected, you'd really only need to watch about five minutes of Jezebel, maybe less to know which one William Wyler directed. I just think the difference in every aspect of the mise-en-scene is, is that obvious. And for me, it's the marathon movie I'm most grateful that I saw. Jezebel's a movie I'm going to return to and that I'm going to share and proselytize for. So that was definitely my best picture. It gets my peeper as it does yours and Nathaniel's. We will list all of these picks and you can hear any archived Davis discussions over at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Now I'm trying to decide, Josh, have me and you and Sam actually landed on what our next marathon is going to be? I feel like we have, and yet I'm drawing a blank. I feel like it was overlooked auteurs. Yes. But we haven't had a conversation it. about it in a while. I, I'm certainly up for that. This would be a whole marathon of women filmmakers, actually, right. because a number of these titles uh, we just have not seen, from Wanda, from Barbara Loden, to Jean Dielman, from Chantal Ackerman, and Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, which is one I have seen but would love an excuse to watch again. So, yeah, we should we should talk about whether we definitely want to go in that direction, but I think that's where we were leaning. Yeah, I think that is going to be the plan. We don't have a start date quite yet for that, but maybe that will be a bridge to some more classic Hollywood and actually some more Davis because William Wyler is a name that's been on our list of potential marathon options for a long time. And at the beginning of this Davis marathon, we consulted one of the foremost experts on Betty Davis and classical Hollywood actresses, Farron Smith, Nemei, she's self-styled siren on Twitter. Give her a follow if you aren't already. And you can find some of her video essays about Davis online, including over at the Criterion channel. And I watched something of hers today, Josh, where she said, the one masterpiece, if she only had one film, I said it would be Jezebel that I'd suggest someone watch. For her, the Betty Davis film, she said, was the best, is actually a different William Wyler film. It's The Letter from 1940. Hmm. Well, you know, let's do a Wyler marathon and include that because I kind of feel like I could use some more Betty Davis, actually. I mean, Me these too. were these were really, for for lack of a better word, easy and sort of fun watches. Densely rewarding films, but not heavy ones to take in, if that makes sense. So, yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind at all if we headed that way. No, and I think, Farron, because I reached out to her on Twitter and said, hey, if we were embarking on a Davis marathon, what are the four films we have to watch? And we did follow her advice, except for the letter. We decided to go with only one William Wyler film and inserted Dark Victory instead. But otherwise, the other three were her suggestions. Again, we encourage you to check out these awards and all of our past marathons over at filmspotting.net slash marathons. 
And Josh, that is our show. Indeed. That was a fun one. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll on the website. We're asking, what is your favorite buddy road trip comedy? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend, I almost said out in wide release, Josh, but it doesn't apply. Sadly, on digital, you can catch How to Build a Girl. This stars Beanie Feldstein, and I've seen this movie, and I will just say I cannot recommend it. Mm. Let's leave it at that. Okay. Let's leave it at that. It's a small little film that means well, and we will move on. Capone, also out. This stars Tom Hardy as the infamous Al Capone, directed by Josh Trank. The infamous Josh Trank that comes out on VOD May 12th here, according to my notes next week. We're not going to talk about either of those films. We are going to get to the fourth entry in our Nolan overview. We're going to look at all three films in the dark Knight trilogy. It's a Batman standalone episode. I am jumping out of bed every morning doing my pushups, Josh, to get ready. <laughs> oh man. I want a little demonstration here via Skype when we're done. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.